Welcome to the Global Business Women's Pod, brought to you by the Greater Houston Women's Chamber of Commerce. I am Susan Dyson and proud to be the CEO, President, and Founder of the Chamber. Please join us for this empowering podcast every Thursday at 6 p.m. So today I'm excited that you have joined us to discover the untapped potential on the world of government contracts. And our goal is that you discover during this session how you can gain a competitive edge with certification. You can understand the request for proposals and learn how to maximize benefits of a government contract. And I'm excited to have Dr. Kim Abrego, owner and principal for Synergy Disaster Solutions, to provide us with this information. So let me tell you a little bit about how fantastic Dr. Abrego is. She has over 20 years of project coordination experience within the disaster recovery industry. Her experience comes from holding positions at Marsh USA Inc. and Disaster Recovery Services LLC, where she has assisted hundreds of clients recover billions of dollars through the coordination of their physical and financial recovery from numerous disasters, including 9-11, Hurricanes Katrina, Rita and Harvey, and the current COVID pandemic crisis. Kim is the chair-elect for the National Institution of Government Procurement Business Council. She's on the advisory board for the Center of Advancement of Research and Excellence, and she's a board member at Hope to Walk. She received a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology from the University of Houston and a doctorate in physical therapy from Texas Women's University. Please help me welcome Kim by introducing yourself and your business to her in the chat. Thank you so much, Kim, for being with us today. Thank you, Shayla. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Good afternoon. Good to see you all here. Let me get my screen shared. Okay, Shayla, can you give me the thumbs up if you can see that? Okay, awesome. Thank you. So as Shayla mentioned, we are here to talk about how to get a government contract and why it matters. Uh, so what I want to do is just provide the framework for why we're even talking about this. There is so much out there in the way of government spend. And as women businesses, we are such great contributors to the economy. So how do we take the local dollars from the government and re-inject them into the economy? And so, you know, as Henry Ford said, coming together is the beginning. Here we are at the beginning, keeping together is progress. So learning about this and then working together with our contracts with the government is success. And that's what we're going to do here. Uh, Shayla touched on the various outcomes, so I'm not going to run through these. But really, the ultimate goal is to get you familiar with the nomenclature, familiar with how you can contract with government agencies. And then really, if you're not going to pay attention to anything else, number four here is critical. Learn strategies to optimize the benefits of the government contract once you get it. There's a lot of work and often a lot of hurdles in working with and trying to work with government. It takes a very long time to get a contract. But once you do, there are so many things that you can do with it. And so that's what I'm also hoping to share with you. Uh, Shayla went through a little bit of my background. Um, why am I here talking to you? I've been in this space for over 20 years. I've helped governments recover billions of dollars through state and local funding. But what I also do is I help those governments spend those dollars. So once they get them, how can they spend them with, with local businesses? And what can they do to take the, the federal funds that they're receiving and get them out into the community? Also, as chair-elect of the Business Council for the National Institute of Government Procurement, I'm in the role of, of helping facilitate the conversation between business and government. 
And I understand the challenges that businesses face in trying to work with governments and the rules and regulations that governments have to follow, which makes it challenging for them to get to the businesses. And so the more we can have this dialogue that we're having today and the others that the Greater Houston Women's Chamber puts on, the more we can kind of bridge that gap of understanding and hopefully get some more local dollars out into the community. I also have gone through the process. If, if you're working through the certification process, I have gone through it. So I have the City of Houston Certified Women Business Enterprise Certification. I have the State of Texas Hub Certification. I have the WBNC Women-Owned Business Certification. And I just recently completed the UT Hub Readiness Training Program. So I've seen kind of multiple sides of this equation. And I'm hoping that through this conversation, this presentation today, I can really help you um, understand a little bit more and gain some access to these funds. So just looking at government in general, to put it into perspective, if we look at government um, industry set or industry sectors as a percent of U.S. gross domestic product, the government sector is third in the list. So it is just behind finance and real estate and professional and business services. So if you are a business and you're looking at your various industry sectors, you and you have not yet considered government as an industry sector, you should because it represents a significant component of the economy. If we break that down though, and you say, okay, well, that's all of government, you know, I'm a small business or I'm a woman-owned business and I'm in the Houston market, what does that look like for me? We're gonna narrow it down a little bit. So if we look at business at the state and local level, so we're taking out federal spending and often this is called SLED. So if you hear the term SLED, state, local, and education is what that refers to. We're looking at here 4.4 trillion dollars. So again, we're taking it from that federal big number, 4.4 trillion, still quite a big number, right? Okay, what does it look like at the county level? So at Harris County, fourth in the list of spend, 8.2 billion dollars in government spent at the county level. And then before we get to the city, I just wanted to give you perspective here. Houston ISD 2.4 billion, so that's in your local area. And then city of Houston, 5.7 billion. So this is one year spent in your city. So how do you get access to that? And it, if you're thinking, I often have this conversation with, with folks and they say, well, I don't really sell to government. I don't have anything that government would need. I am not doing fleet, I'm not doing construction, I'm not doing infrastructure. So I don't really, I, I don't know why I would consider government. I know they spend a lot of money. I went on the city of Houston's website yesterday and just pulled up open solicitations that they have. And I wanted to point out just the, the breadth of things that the government buys. And this is local government. We've got exercise equipment, animal control equipment, braille brochures, catering, laundry detergent, executive coaching, uh, you know, part services, um, software, administrative services, legal assistance. So it does really range in, in depth and breadth of services um, that they're looking for. So if you haven't um, yet considered 
the local government spend as a target or an industry, you should. Um, and so now that we understand just kind of why the government matters, why the government sector matters or should matter, how do you get there? How do you solidify your connection to that spend? And as women-owned businesses, we really have an opportunity to use certifications to connect ourselves to that spend. As uh, Karen Mills, former SBA administrator said, small businesses are the engine of the economy and the heartbeat of our communities. And we've seen over the last decade plus that there's been you know, ebbs and flows in how the structure works and, and the nomenclature around the structure. But it is evident that funding local tax dollars that are reinjected into local women-owned small minority businesses um, really bolster the economy and are the heartbeat of the community. And so there are there are things in place to help facilitate that. And now those are things like these certifications. And you can see that they these certifications not only help propel you as a business forward, but they're unlocking opportunities um, that help fuel your growth as a business. So once a certification is achieved, you now have access to government funds and contracts that you may not have had access to before. You've got access to networking and engagement opportunities. Um, you know, a lot of the state and local governments will do networking opportunities where you can show up. Shayla just listed a bunch of networking opportunities that you can show up to as part of your, your membership with the Houston Women's Chamber. New business partners. As a, as a small women-owned business myself, I'm now listed on the city of Houston site and I will get uh, on average, about five emails a week of, of prime contractors that are looking to start conversations with me as the owner of my firm to develop relationships in the event that they might need a subcontractor in the future to help them achieve any sort of um, minority, small, women-owned business goals that the city has. So these business partnerships and then increased visibility. As I mentioned, I'm on the website of WBNC, the, you know, the certifications that I listed and therefore have this opportunity to network and engage with other uh, state and local governments as well as businesses. Just to clarify the types of certifications that we're gonna be focusing on here today uh, that are related to women-owned businesses. There are numerous certifications out there, but the women-owned business certifications, the two at the bottom are federally driven certifications. So the women-owned small business, economically disadvantaged women-owned small business, those are not what we're talking about today. We're going to focus more at the local level. So the state, the women business enterprise, minority women business enterprise. So your WBE and your MWBE, or if you do a lot of government business in Texas or you've heard these terms, the maybe weebies. This is where that maybe weeby term comes from is this acronym here. Uh, and so those are the certifications that say the city of Houston, Metro and others are looking for those state certifications. To take a, a little bit deeper dive, city of Houston, um, they list their advantages or benefits of certification. So you can have 
you're helping achieve goals that the city has set. And we'll get to what those goals are by getting your certification. The acronyms here are listed on the right-hand side, but minority women-owned small disadvantaged businesses and airport concession disadvantaged business enterprise. Um, so when they when the city is putting out projects, they have specific goals based on project category and you have a catbird seat to getting business for that category because you have the certification. Um, you obviously have to be a good, you know, a good business, be able to have the capacity, be able to service the scope. But if you have the certification, you're now jumping up in line in terms of the bidding process to be able to um, get that work. The city certification is three years. So once you get it, you do have it for three years before they do the renewal. And then like we talked about with visibility, the city is also recognizing here that you have increased visibility on their website. One thing I'll share here on the um, city certification, if you are interested in getting that certification, I suggest you start now if you've had not already, there's a five to six month wait on the approval process for this certification right now. So I, it is quite a bit of paperwork. Um, there's a bit of a process to go through. They wanna know who owns the firm, documentation to prove it, the formation documents, your uh, revenues last year proven by audited tax statements or your personal tax return, et cetera. So you wanna start pulling that documentation together and submit that so that you, in six months time, we'll receive the certification. You don't want to wait until you see an RFP or a bid come out and then try and get the certification because you want to respond to that bid. I mentioned the goals that the city of Houston has. Uh, so for construction greater than a million, they want 34% of those dollars to go to small minority women-owned firms. For professional services, 24%. And for goods and services above 100,000, 11%. So you can see that there's some significant dollars here that are, that are set for or targets for small minority women-owned businesses. One thing to note is there's a difference between a set-aside and a goal. A set-aside is often done at the federal level, and it's a requirement that a certain percentage has to go to small minority women-owned businesses. Whereas at the local level, it's typically a goal. So you can see here, these are goals for the city of Houston, where they're looking to meet. They've done a disparity study within the city, and they figured out that there's enough capacity, enough businesses to support the need, and that there's enough um, certification work out there to be able to meet these goals. Some quick stats, um, last year, the city awarded just over a billion dollars um, on goal-oriented contracts, meaning contracts that are eligible for these goals. Of that, 346 million was um, put towards small minority women-owned businesses. So 346, million out of a billion. So they're averaging above 30% on their overall goals, which is actually very good um, for cities. Something you know, else you want to keep in mind when you're going for certification. As I mentioned, there are various types of certification that you can get. 
as a small business or as a women-owned business, you, we're often wearing many hats. We don't have a lot of time. You're trying to figure out, you know, I've got to do marketing over here. I've got to do payroll over here. I'm trying to hire somebody over here. And now I need to go and get a certification. How can I do all of this? So you really want to try and leverage. One of the ways that you can leverage certifications is through reciprocity. So that means if I have a certification with one agency, who else will accept that certification? And so this here shows you the city of Houston's reciprocity. So if you get the city of Houston certification, Metro will accept it, TxDOT will accept it, the Port of Houston will accept it, Houston First accept it, Houston Housing Authority, Houston Community College. So now that you have the city of Houston certification, you should be registering as a business with all of these different agencies so that you can be alerted to opportunities that come up because you have the certification that they will accept. And as mentioned previously, you're jumping to the front of the line if you have that certification. There are often extra points awarded in an RFP process if you are if you hold the certification. And they are also trying to meet their own goals. So if you can help them meet those goals, it, it's very advantageous for them to contract with you. So keeping in mind reciprocity when you're looking at the certifications that you want to spend time and money towards getting. And then just showing you other local governments and, and who accepts. So Port of Houston, if you're looking at um, doing business with them, this is the one on the right here. They will accept the city of Houston, Houston Minority Supplier Development Council, Metro um, 8A, which Shayla mentioned they're doing a whole session on 8A, uh, Hub, the Women's Business Enterprise, et cetera. Harris County accepts city of Houston, federal, state, and 8A. Uh, Houston ISD accepts City of Houston, Houston's Minority Supplier Development Council, Women's Business Enterprise. So just another way to look at reciprocity with other local government agencies to see if you have an opportunity to take that certificate um, to these agencies. So we talked about the City of Houston as a certifying agency. There are other agencies out there. So Women's Business Enterprise, which I mentioned, I have that certification. If you're looking at doing business as a women-owned business nationally, Women's Business Enterprise is a great certification to get because it's a national certification. So there are um, local governments outside of Texas that will accept Women's Business Enterprise certifications. So that's a great one to overlay on top of a state or local certification that you have. Um, there's also the South Central Texas Regional Certification. So that goes, you can see the geography there on the on their logo. Uh, Texas Hub, which is more of a statewide certification. And then we've got Houston Minority Supplier Development Council. So while we're focused primarily our conversation today on uh, state and local government spend and how you can access that spend, Houston Minority Supplier Development Council is providing certification so that you can do spend with um, private for-profit entities, right? So that you can do business with the Shells and the Exxons and the Mobiles of the world. And they they also have supplier goals that they're trying to meet. And so this um, HMSDC is in that, uh, not in the government space and the private sector space. So that's the process. Now let's talk about the or the certification process. Now let's talk about the procurement process. 
So there are many different ways that you can contract with the government. So just because you have a certification doesn't doesn't mean that you now have a contract, right? So you're now, uh, you've been designated as an approved um, certified women-owned business, but how do you now go about getting a contract? So I wanted to go through a few of the different types of contracts uh, that are available through your local state and local government so that you get an understanding at least of the nomenclature so that when things come out, you are familiar with what you're seeing. So there are three different types of requests. There's an RFI, which is a request for information, an RFQ, which is a request for quote, and an RFP, which is a request for proposals. Those three are very different. And you can enter into a conversation with your state and local government with any of these three. So a couple of distinctions between the three. An RFI is when a state or local government says, I know I need something related to, let's just say, AI. But I don't know enough about AI to put together a really good scope um, so that I can solicit um, suppliers to respond. So I'm going to put out a request for information, and you can see here the objective is research. So it's going to say something like, the city of Houston is looking for firms that can supply AI platforms to assist with X, Y, and Z. Please provide us with your information related to this service offering. And they're really trying to glean and get information from a variety of different sources so that they can then cross-reference all of this information and come up with a true scope that they think would be the best for their constituents. Uh, suppliers who respond to RFIs can be qualified or non-qualified, meaning you don't have to be an approved vendor, you don't have to be in the system. They just kind of put it out there and anybody can answer. Uh, and the terms and conditions, they will either put out terms and conditions so that you can review them and comment on them, or because this is, doesn't really result in a contract, they're just, they, they won't even include terms and conditions. They're more looking for what you know and what you can provide them in the way of information for scope. Then you've got your RFQ, which is your request for quote. Um, they've got a problem and they want you to quote them with a solution. It's normally a pretty defined scope. Um, qualified, again, non-qualified suppliers can respond and the terms and conditions are negotiable or non-existing. Then you've got, and RFQs kind of sit, if you look at the thresholds in the bottom, which we'll go over, they, they kind of sit in the purchase order informal bids section. So they're normally lower in amount and or associated with um, architectural and engineering services. Then you've got your RFP, which is your request for proposals. This is a very exact specification. So there's going to be a very defined scope typically quite long about everything that they're looking for. And there's gonna be a very defined way that they want you to respond to their RFP. Only qualified suppliers can respond and they will normally say what those qualifications are. You know, For example, if they're putting an RFP out for a call center, they need a call center that's going to answer within 30 seconds. You know, if you cannot respond, if you cannot respond in that, you are not a qualified supplier or they want a supplier that is located within a certain geography or can physically respond within a certain um, time frame. So that's how they're qualifying. And then terms and conditions, the buyer, meaning the state and local government is going to have strict requirements. 
Sometimes they will allow for comment on their terms and conditions. Other times they will not. It's a take it or leave it. And if you're doing an RFP, you really want to read the terms and conditions. Make sure that you're not getting yourself into a bind. The other thing you need to be aware of when you're looking at government contracts is thresholds. So, so that you can understand where you can enter into the conversation with the government. So if they, if you have a good or service that is typically purchased for an amount less than $20,000, they're more than likely able to, at the department level, issue a purchase order for that and do kind of an informal process of getting a few quotes. So you have a much lower threshold to doing business with your state and local government, if that's the case. As the price jumps up, the procurement requirements um, for fairness, transparency, and open competition begin to come into play. And you then move through this RFI, RFQ, RFP process. As the amount gets higher, you're typically entering into an RFP or sealed bid um, scenario so that um, the government, the state and local government can show that they advertised the bid, that everybody had an equal opportunity to respond to the bid, that they evaluated the bids or proposals against a very um, clear outline criteria, et cetera. So that if anybody questions that solicitation and that award later on, they've got some clear documentation. As the price moves up, it's harder to have the dialogue and the conversation with the local government um, once the RFPs, as we call it, hit the street. That, nor that normally then set sets a time period, which is a blackout period, as they call it, where you cannot talk to anybody um, at the local government associated with that RFP other than one designated procurement person if you have questions about the scope or the process for submitting documentation. What you wanna try and do, especially as a, a certified women business certificate holder is enter into the conversation with the local government well ahead of any formal solicitation process. That enables you to start having um, building relationships, having dialogue, educating the end users at the state and local government about what you do, about what they should be looking for. Oftentimes, they may not even know that they have a problem uh, until you point out that they're that they may want to be aware of this issue that's out there. And oh, by the way, you have a solution for it. So that's procurement, kind of in a in a on a slide, there's so much more to procurement and there are departments of 30, 40 people that do procurement for cities. Uh, but that, as far as navigating, that's one thing that you should know. The other is know your codes. And what does that mean? So there are two different types of codes. Um, there's your NAICS codes and your NIGP codes. NAICS codes are normally done at the state levels. You can go to this um, census.gov and you can search for your type of business and then you will get to your NAICS code. Um, and then NIGP code is normally done at the city level and that's the National Institute of Government Procurement and they've created commodity codes that align with the goods or services that you provide. Why do these matter? Why are they important? When state and local governments are putting out bids, quotes, RFPs, those end users or those procurement people have to assign codes to them. They have to say, the, they, this is 
uh, I'm looking for a service and it has this NAICS code or it has this NIGP code. If you're registered in the system, it's going to match whatever proposals get put out there with the codes that you've registered with and you will get notification of the opportunity. If you do not match, you're not going to be aware of the opportunity. So my suggestion to you is as you're going through and putting registering as vendors in the various local government systems, you're going to put as many NAICS codes and NIGP codes as you can that fit the services. Even if they're tangential to what you do, you might cross into that, but it's not entirely what you do. You're not sure how the procurement person is going to register the bid um, and how they're thinking about the services provided. And so you want to just cast a very, very wide net in terms of code so that you're getting notifications of as many opportunities as possible. Uh, in presenting this in the past, I normally get the question, well, then why wouldn't I just register with all the codes? There are thousands of codes. And if you do that, your inbox is just going to get flooded because every opportunity that gets out there is going to then get matched to you and you're not going to be able to filter through um, what's actually relevant. So you, you want to cast a wide net, but still be um, you know, somewhat related to the services or the goods that you provide. The next thing I suggest you do is a go-no-go -go analysis. The reason I suggest this is uh, if you are going to do business with government and end up in a in a place where you are needing to respond to requests for proposals or RFPs, we've done some analysis and RFPs are incredibly expensive to respond to in the way of time and resources for your business. So as, as chair-elect of the business council, we actually did a study of the, the cost to propose to an RFP and it ranges anywhere from fifteen to $60,000 for a business to respond in the way of hours, time, and resources um, that's not addressing the opportunity cost. So again, if we are small businesses, if I'm working on this RFP, then this isn't getting done. So we didn't address any opportunity cost. Um, but, and you also want to kind of look at the likelihood of winning. So you could just, there are so many RFPs out there that you could spend there are companies that just have departments and all they do is respond to RFPs. So you really want to look at, um, is this RFP worth me responding to? And some of the criteria that you should look at are, do I have a previous relationship with the, the buyer, with the state or local government? That's beneficial if you do. They know of you. They know who you are. Does the scope align with what I do? Uh, or am I going to have to pull in additional partners because that's an extra work? Do I have the capacity to perform the work? Let's say, you know, I'm in the disaster response space. And when there's a large scale disaster, that's the one that often kicks our RFPs out is this is a great RFP. We have a relationship with them. It, you know, the, the scope fits, all of it fits, but we just don't have enough bandwidth anymore to respond to this RFP. We'd love to do the work, but it's going to take us 50 to 100 hours to respond to the RFP where we could be servicing our clients. So uh, looking at things like that, looking at insurance and bonding requirements. So these RFPs are extensive in terms of just um, legalese and language. And I find often firms will skip through a lot of that stuff. 
If you're going to skip through stuff, do not skip through insurance and bonding. You really need to make sure that you're able to meet the insurance requirements as stated and or ask for waivers. Um, and then if there is bonding required, can you meet those bonding requirements? You do have the ability to ask for a waiver. And that's something I do want to point out is if there are, if you feel that there are excessive insurance or bonding requirements in the RFP, uh, you can reach out to the procurement point of contact and, and note that and see if they will lower the limits for you. You know, a good example is um, IT firms. So state and local governments, they'll often just copy their boilerplate language and they put it in each RFP. And they'll be doing a solicitation for IT related work. It requires no on-site presence, yet they have an automobile liability requirement in their insurance of a million plus dollars. Well, IT firms typically won't carry that coverage because they're not driving vehicles onto clients' properties. So now the IT firms can't respond because they don't carry that insurance. Or they could just email the procurement director or contact and ask for a waiver and, and give the reasoning as to why. And the last one, there are many other criteria you could use uh, to look at for your go-no-go no go analysis, but another one is document complexity. So how much of a lift is it going to be to respond to this RFP? Do they require hard copy binders submitted? Um, do they require an in-person pre-solicitation meeting? Do they require in-person oral interviews after? Right, Looking at... Um, in one case, we had an RFP that we looked at responding to, and it ended up the way that they were asking for it after clarification, where they needed almost 30 binders delivered and copies delivered with um, original signatures in all. That's an excessive requirement and something that would be a heavy lift for somebody. So just looking at all of that combined so that you, you know and are comfortable that you're spending your time where you should be spending your time. The other thing you should have when working with state and local governments is a capability statement. This is a one page, one to two, ours is two, but often it's a one page marketing document that covers these four areas. So you've got your company information, that's you know, your standard name, address, email, contact info, your um, UEI number, NAICS codes, any certifications you have, et cetera. Uh, you've got your core competencies. So exactly what it is that you do boiled down into a few bullets. Then you've got your differentiators. What makes you different to everybody else? Again, boiled down into a few bullet points. And then past performance and past experience. Uh, past performance and past experience, these are used interchangeably. They sound like they're the same, but one is past performances as a firm your firm did this work, past experiences as a person, I did this work before I joined this firm. And so if you are a new business that has just started, you're going to have a lot more past experience that you can list versus past performance as a firm. That's fine. Just list it as where you were when you did the work and that's your past experience that's come forward. Working through a capability statement, um, is is a fantastic way to get your elevator pitch done. It's also a great intro to those conversations. So as I mentioned in the RF, IRFQ, RFP, um, 
dialogue um, and continuum, sending that capability statement is a great way to start that conversation or as a follow-up from a meeting. It's a great marketing tool. And then often if there's an, a quote or um, you know an informal bid process, you've already got this ready to go and that can be your differentiator. So having this readily available along with your certificate or your certification um, is a great marketing packet. And then as we talked about, once you do, so you've received your certification, we've gone through the RFP, hopefully you've won the awards. So now you've got the, the, the magic combination of certification plus contract. How can you leverage that? And if you recall at the very beginning of the session, I said, if you're not going to pay attention to anything else, I want you to pay attention to number four. This is number four, okay? This is how are we gonna leverage what you now have to get greater outcomes? Because as I mentioned, it's expensive for you to respond to RFPs. It's time consuming to keep up with certifications. So if you have a certification and you have a contract, that is like the rocket fuel that's gonna get you to the next place. But what do you pull from that to get you there? One of these is contract language. So you wanna take a look at the contract language in the contract that you received and see if there is shareable contract language in there. What does that mean? It means that there is some language in the contract that allows other government agencies to use the same contract, meaning you don't have to do another RFP. So if city of Houston has shareable contract language in their contract, you can then take that contract to maybe West University because they don't, they, they do their own, um, city of West U and say, hey, there's shareable language in here. Would you be willing to use the city of Houston's contract? So, you know, I've highlighted an example here. The use of this solicitation and resulting contracts shall be made available to other local government agencies and agencies established for public benefit. The parties agree to allow other government agencies to enter into separate agreements with the contractor under the terms and prices in effect between the county and the contractor. So that's the type of language that you're looking for. And often this language is a lifesaver for other cities and counties because these procurement departments at our cities and counties are overworked and under-resourced. They don't wanna keep putting RFPs out. It's a lot of work for them. If they can find a way to access the services they need without having to do another RFP while still satisfying the requirements of transparency, open competition, et cetera, et cetera. They're gonna go that route. It's the path of least resistance. So know your contracts and know if you have this language in your contracts because this is your golden ticket. This is your way to say, you can hire me directly. So, you know, if you've had done business with governments in the past, you often have the conversation with them and they say, well, this is great, but I have to do an RFP. And your answer to that is you don't have to do another RFP because I already have, I already responded and won this award and you can use this one. So this is a huge, huge benefit. Um, I, I pulled a quote, this is actually from a, a director of procurement in Florida, but they awarded um, for a small, a woman-owned business, an agreement for tarps, for roofs. And they, at the request of the women-owned business, uh, included shareable contract language in there. And as you can imagine, that women-owned business has now 
almost tripled in size because they've been able to use that contract at all of the neighboring jurisdictions to try to have them now be able to access. And of course, the neighboring jurisdictions want to use it because she's got her certification. And again, we're going back to the goals and the set asides, right? We're help, helping all of that. So be, be, pay close attention to the contract language. This is, again, if you do not see this contract language in there, when you're having conversations, create a proposal, ask if they can include it. It often is not hard for them to include this contract language and they're typically willing to do it. And then the last piece I want to touch on before I kick it over for any questions is cooperative agencies. We could do an entire hour on cooperative agencies, but I wanna point out uh, how important these are for small or, and women minority-owned businesses in way of leverage. So a cooperative agency is an agency that takes the cooperative or the shareable language that I just mentioned, and they've created a business out of it. So they have said, we're going to help manage all of these contracts and market all of these contracts that have shareable language in them. So I'll take Choice Partners as an example. Choice Partners is the cooperative arm for Harris County Department of Education. When Harris County Department of Education puts out a solicitation, they automatically include language in there that refers to the shareable, shareability of the contract between other local jurisdictions and they reference choice partners. So if I'm a woman-owned business and I respond to a request for a proposal from Harris County Department of Education and I am awarded a contract, I now have a choice partners contract. There are members across the United States, government members across the United States, thousands of them that are part of Choice Partners that now have access to me and my contract. So instead of it just being a one-to-one -one relationship where I only want a contract with Harris County and only Harris County can access me, now thousands of members across the United States can access me through that contract. So when I'm going out and marketing to state and local governments, I'm sharing that Choice Partners contract number with them. In fact, I have my Choice Partners contract number on my capability state, right? It is a key differentiator and it's a way for state and local governments to directly access me immediately. All they have to do is sign up to be a member if they're not. If they're already a member, they can access me right away. Same thing with HGAC BY is another one. So HGAC stands for Houston Galveston Area Council. They also have this smart purchasing solution, which is their cooperative arm. If you are awarded a contract through Houston Galveston Area Council, you're now part of HGAC BY. HGAC BY also has thousands of members across the United States, and I now have access to all of their members to market. So. Something to think about when you are looking at go, no-goes and you're looking at RFPs that you want to respond to. If there is an opportunity to respond to an RFP that is attached to a cooperative agency, you've now increased your leverage significantly if you're awarded that contract. So you want to keep that in mind when you're going through um, your various assessments. So with that, we did want to provide my contact information. And then uh, I don't know if there are any questions. I'm happy to answer questions if, if folks have any. 
but um, feel free to grab my contact information and reach out. I'm happy to help. As I said, I've gone through this a number of times and I know there's some significant hurdles. Uh, so I, anything that I can do to help answer questions, I'd be happy. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you again next Thursday at 6 p.m. For more information about the Chamber and our podcast, please visit us at ghwcc.org.